Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. I'll shortly be joined by Puya Ali Maram to discuss the protests in Iran, as well as the history which led up to them. But first, please don't forget to go to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and hit the donate button and subscribe to our newsletter. I'll be back in a bit. I'm very excited to be joined by Pouya Ali Maram. He's a historian and a lecturer on the modern Middle East at MIT. And he's also the author of the book, Contesting the Iranian Revolution, The Green Uprisings. Thanks so much for joining me, Pouya. It's good to be here. Thank you. So I wanted to ask you about um, the current protests. Right now, we're about three months into the protests. It's been three months since uh, Masa Amini was killed by the morality police. Over hundreds, or actually almost 500 people have been killed now during the protests, and we've seen two people being executed. So I was wondering if you think the protests will continue to have momentum or if they'll be driven underground. Um, it's a good question. So, um, you know, momentum doesn't necessarily have to be every day, right? So we've seen the uprising. We're actually, we just had the, we're in the 96th day of it. You, it has a lot of ebbs and flows. Um, every Friday is a big um, spike because, especially in places like Zahedan, um, where um, they gather for Friday prayers and then right afterwards, um, you know, protest, um, especially the Baluchis, they protest. Um, the, the repression is real, though, right? So when you have a disorganized movement, um, and when I say disorganized, I'm not trying to knock it, but I'm not trying to say that it's ineffective or there's no organization, but um you know organizations are really important to revolutions right they they or they get people going they um say, set dates and times they present an alternative ideology to get everybody else on board with it there are people setting dates and times and locations but there's so many it's a bit disorganized and the the real issue is is that because they haven't really present it's really easy to say what you're against but they haven't really presented systematically an alternative and for that reason um the great majority of the population, however sympathetic they may be, if many Iranians are a little bit weary of what could come about after, after the regime falls, right? So they haven't, they may be sympathetic, they may be looking at it, they may be a fence sitter, they're sitting on the fence looking out, looking in from the outside, thinking about getting involved, but they don't know what's going to happen. So they haven't really crossed that threshold yet, right? So having an organization that could present a viable, realistic, practical alternative is part of getting a big country like Iran, which is about 85 million people, getting getting them all on board. And then the flip side of this is, is really important because while the movement is disorganized, um, the state is very organized. Right, the state is very organized and very repressive. Um, it has an entire repressive apparatus, not just in security forces, but in political prisons and the judiciary. Um, you know, oftentimes rudimentary uh, kangaroo court trials, um, torture, rape. These are part of its repressive cap capacity that's actually very organized. And then there's the multi-layered security forces. So. You see, you see the ebbs and flows, and and we're at that point where it seems like they, you know, the protests are evolving. There's more, there's more strikes than were happening initially, but the number of street gatherings have decreased. The number of protests at universities are decreasing, but that doesn't mean they're not going to increase all of a sudden either, right? So the uprising or the Iranian Revolution itself was about 14, 15 months long, lots of ebbs and flows, and then. Um, basically a year into it is really when um, the majority of the population became mobilized. So the, the, the Shah fled the country January 16th, 1979, December 10th, 1978, right towards the end of the, of the revolution was when the revolution was brought to a crescendo. So uh, it's kind of hard to predict what's going to happen, but you see the state really employing maybe a fraction of its repressive capacity. Um, you know, 500 people are dead, probably more. We don't know the exact number. It could be, more. it's probably more, but that's still really, um, the, the state is, uh, able to 
repressed much more than that, right? So it's not really, f- it, it is repressing. I don't mean to downplay it or down or downsize it, but it's just capable of much more than that. Um, so that's why, you know, I don't really know what's going to happen. Um, the, the, you know, another trend that I'm noticing is that the, the demonstrators are actually getting a little bit more organized than they were initially. Right. And do you see a leader emerging at some point? Because you've spoken about how the protests currently are, are leaderless, and maybe that's why some Iranians are, are a bit reticent to join on to this movement, or perhaps they are sympathetic towards the regime. Um, so you're going to get me killed because if I tell you that as of now, there's no viable leader, all the supporters of different leaders will probably come after me. Um, <laughs> there are, there's, there's plenty of leaders. The, the, the most well-known to Western audiences live in the West, right? Um, there are people, there are many leaders in the, in the country. A lot of them are in prison and that's kind of the issue, right? Um, there's, there's, it's difficult to have a viable leader spring from the country because of the repression. But, you know, history is our guide, right? Khomeini himself was the leader of the Iranian revolution. He was arrested, exiled first to Turkey, then to Iraq. 14, 14 years later, he returned from exile abroad and, and led a revolution. Uh, 14 years is, is a long time, but relatively speaking, it's short. The only, the problem I see is that a lot of the leaders that, are presenting themselves as leaders in the West. They've been in the West for a lot longer than 14 years. Um, and so there's a big disconnect. And, and some of these leaders who, who have been in the West for, for this long have been, are very closely, t- closely tied to foreign governments. And, and that kind of hurts their political standing within the country. Right. So it, it's kind of, the one constant in modern Iranian history is is the desire to be independent, right? So if you look at all the moments of revolutionary upheaval in the country, from the tobacco revolts of the 1890s, where, where the Qajar Shahs were just handing over the economy for short-term concessions or short-term gains, um, the economy was just being gifted away to foreigners, the British and the Russians. And then there was this movement against the monarch to to cancel the concessions. That eventually leads into a constitutional revolution to rein in the powers of these monarchs so they don't just give away the economy to foreigners, um, to imperial powers. And then, you know, we go from the tobacco revolt to the constitutional revolution and then the nationalist movement of Mossadegh, Dr. Mohammad Mossadegh, who nationalized the Iranian oil company against British interests and the British and Americans together ended up overthrowing him. So the constant, you know, is, and we, that's, you know, brings us all the way to the Iranian revolution in 78, 79 is to wrest Iran's independence, its sovereignty from foreign powers. So this is the constant that continues to this day. Can, can we have a leader, an alternative leader, um, to this Islamic Republic or to Khamenei? Uh, coming in from abroad, who is not tainted with with its proximity to foreign governments, uh, and and that's really the issue, in my opinion, of of a lot of the leadership in exile that's presenting itself as alternatives is that they don't command that fealty that comes with being independent, right? Most of the leadership that came to power after the revolution. Um, actually ended up refusing a lot of foreign help. So the first president was uh, Abul Hassan Bani Saad. Um, and, you know, the Iraqis came to him. Uh, Saddam Hussein had, had you know, regional rivalry with the Shah. They came, Saddam Hussein came, his, his uh, government approached Bani Saad in exile and said, hey, you know, we came to power through a military coup. Um, how about we help you guys uh, through help you guys overthrow the Shah through a military coup? And Bani Saad's like, you know, Iran is different from Iraq, but also we can't accept foreign help. And and for that reason, he was, wasn't tainted with um, being part of a, a foreign conspiracy or being an agent of a foreign government and was able to become the first president of the country. He was ultimately driven out by the conservative clergy in 81, but he was the country's first ever president. Right. And that's obviously, or arguably, a long-lasting gain and accomplishment of the revolution is that it was able to accomplish this independence from Western imperialism. And so I wonder if, if the current regime actually 
feels threatened because they, they keep Iranian propaganda is basically saying, you know, we're, um, we're being threatened by like a Western staged coup or uprising. And we need to crack down on these protesters. We need to execute people so that we instill fear in the population so that they won't protest. Do you think that they actually are feeling really desperate at this point and are scared as to what is coming next? So let's, I want to say this first of all, every time there's been, um, an uprising against the Iranian government, the Iranian government presents it as being part of the Western conspiracy, right? Every single one of them. Um, but, you know, I, part of that is because there has been conspiracies concocted against Iran. And the most obvious example is the U.S.-British overthrow of the Iranian government in 1953, the dem democratically elected government of, of Dr. Mohammad Mossadegh. That doesn't mean that protesters today are part of this Western conspiracy, right? Um, they have legitimate grievances, uh, 100%, and they have their own, they do their own cost benefit analysis. They're their own agents. They have agency and they're protesting. Um, but the government, the government, the Iranian government likes to paint, it has to paint these people as part of a Western conspiracy to justify cracking down on them. And to be honest with you, the United States kind of makes it a little bit easy, not because it's behind the protest because in my opinion, it, it, it isn't, but because of all the intervention at the hands of the United States in the region, Iran is essentially encircled by the United States before the Taliban um, came back to power. The United States had military forces in Afghanistan, it has military forces in Iraq, Syria, the Persian Gulf. Uh, it is sanctioning Iran. The sanctions in Iran predate this uprising, has nothing to do with it. It's all about the nuclear program, which Iran was abiding by. So there is all these like really malicious policies that the United States um, is pursuing that gives the Iranian government the justification to present or cast the demonstrators as being part of this Western conspiracy when they're not, right? Uh, the protesters have nothing to do with you. They're not, they're not getting orders from the United States to rise up. They're not these people who are, are doing the bidding of the U.S. government. They have their own beef with the Iranian government. They have every single incentive, personal um, uh, reasons or incentives to protest the state. The state is very repressive um, and it has been repressive and it's only growing more repressive as it um, loses, continuously loses its legitimacy. And it's been, its legitimacy has been, has been chipped away at for years now. In my, in my book, I focus on the 2009 uprising because that was, and to this day still is the biggest challenge to the Iranian government. Um, and people look at that as a failure because it was ultimately put down, but it had so many important victories. And its most important and lasting victory was that it uh, shattered the state's uh, sources of legitimacy. It, it the state has uh, it thought it it, saw, it sees itself as having a monopoly on Islamic truth, on this history of the revolution. Uh, the uprising in two thousand nine robbed the state of all of these sources of legitimation, and then most importantly, it kind of transitioned from "Where is my vote?" in June two thousand nine to December this this month is the month of blood. Will Khamenei will be overthrown or toppled? And that was really the first public moment where the where demonstrators began to target the entire system, the core. Uh, every protest since 2009 has picked up, picked up where the Green Movement was put down. And it's, every protest has been targeting the core ever since then. So one slogan you hear now in this uprising is, this year is the year of blood. Khamenei will be overthrown. Um, so I, I, that's why, I, as a historian, I like to talk about continuity. Uh, these things, you know, they cascade, they build on their predecessors. Uh, even the Green Movement itself built on the symbolism and repertoires of political action of the Iranian Revolution. Right. So you see the current protests as coming out of that same trajectory in which um, the protesters of the Green Uprising were basically co-opting the symbols of the revolution to undercut the legitimacy of the Islamic Republic. So they're not doing that right now. But my, my point in connecting these is that the Green Movement uh, co-opted those symbols to attack the legitimacy of the Iranian government. Now, they, ever since 2009, it's been operating um, without the same legitimacy it had before 2009. So you know, every protest that's happened since then has continued to chip away at that uh, legitimacy. So today, they're not, they're not really using a lot of the symbolism 
of of the Iranian revolution. Because the whole thing with the Iranian government is that it has its sources of legitimation, its sources of legitimization come from Islam and the Iranian or Islamic revolution. And then it institutionalized all these symbols in the political, aesthetic, and educational landscape of the country. Shut down the schools, Islamized the curriculum, you know, change the books. And now the books are talking about Khomeini as this great leader and Palestine and the, the you know the Muslim cause of Palestine needed to be needing to be liberated, and uh, the political calendar changes. Right now we have days like the seizure of the U.S. embassy is a day of like you know protests against U.S. imperialism. These are all days. These are all days that came about through the revolution that became institutionalized as part of the discourse or common sense logic of, of the state post-revolution. Um, all of that was challenged in 2009. All of it was challenged. And, and the one example I, I really like to give, there's two examples I really like to give, but I'll, I'll focus on one so I don't bore you, is the, the Iranian government, that big demonstration I talked about earlier in our discussion, the December 10th, 1978, where like literally millions of Iranians came out. That was Ashura, the day of the anniversary of the martyrdom of the Prophet Muhammad's grandson, Hussein, Imam Hussein. They, the whole idea was that, uh, the, 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 this day of commemoration had typically been a day of mourning. You see in the late sixties and seventies across, um, Shiite communities, in the Muslim world, uh, Hussein's martyrdom becomes reinterpreted, right? If before you just mourned him and as somebody that was oppressed and was killed in the seventh century, um, and if he died fighting tyranny, and if God let him die, the prophet's grandson died fighting tyranny, then that our fate will be the same. There's no point in resisting. That was like a very defeatist attitude. What you end up seeing happening in the late sixties and seventies saying, no, the proper commemoration of Hussein's martyrdom is to rise up against injustice. Your life is not more important than his. If he was willing to fight and die, then who are you to say that you don't want to do that? If you believe in him, then you should rise up against the tyranny and injustice of today. Because if Hussein was alive today, he'd be you know shoulder to shoulder with us. So you see that reinterpretation of Hussein's legacy. Uh, and that's why Ashura, December 7th, 1978, was the biggest biggest protest event in the history of the Iranian revolution. Anywhere between 10 to 15, 17 million people. At a time when Iran's population was about 34, 35 million people. So almost half. That was the largest protest event in world history. At a time where the Shah had martial law imposed and a military government in power in Tehran. Since the revolution, the Iranian government basically has co-opted Ashura now, saying that we as the Iranian government um, support the David and Goliath struggle. We are the flag bearers of Hussein as we face down the United States in the region, right? And they, 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 you know, this is part of the history of now of not just Islam, but of the Iranian revolution. They, they drilled this lesson into the, into the next generation that was raised under the authority of the Iranian government. The Austria of 2009 then flies, it blows up in the face of the Iranian government because on Ashura, December 27, 2009, protesters were saying, um, you know, uh, this month is a month of blood, Sayyid Ali Khamenei will be overthrown. This month is a month of blood, Yazid will be overthrown. So now they're equating the Iranian government with the murders of Hussein on Ashura of all days. And in doing so, they, they're using that language of Islam and the Iranian revolution against the so-called leader of the Iranian revolution, right? So Khamenei, even though he was not the leader of the revolution, he embodies the continuity of the revolution. So one of his many titles is he is the leader of the revolution. And this is, this is when the government really was considered the protesters as blasphemous. They are sacrilegious, they're violating our sanctities, and a lot of those death sentences that we see being handed down now, you really see them climax in the six-month uprising in the Green Movement, six or seven-month uprising in the Green Movement. A lot of those death sentences were handed down uh, in, in late December, early January because of those Austria protests. One last point. One of the really interesting things about 2009 is that by protesting the Iranian government, on Ashura of all days, they brought to the fore paradox that exists in Iran. Hussein in the seventh century died fighting power. He never achieved power. In the international arena, the United States is the, is the world's superpower, sole superpower, right? For Iran, 
the Iranian government to be leading the charge against the United States in the Middle East um, could play on that Hussein-like flag bearer, flag bearing um, mantra of the, the David and Goliath struggle, right? Because the United States is the power holder in the world, and here's this resistance state um, fighting that David and Goliath struggle. But on Austria 2009, the paradox comes to the fore because in within the borders of Iran, domestically, the Iranian government that claims Hussein's mantle is the ultimate arbiter of power, right? And the protesters were unarmed facing down the state and, and, and they were invoking Hussein's legacy and, and facing down the state. That's what I mean when I say they robbed the state of all these sources of legitimacy. The Iranian government since 2009 is a shell of its former self in terms of its sources of legitimation and it has doubled down on repression. So it's evolving and hardening its repressive capacity because it doesn't have the legitimacy it once had before 2009. In the eyes of many, it never had legitimacy. But if we're speaking objectively, it was far more uh, legitimate in 2009 than it is today because of everything that's happened since. Right. Well, the regime must have been incredibly infuriated if it had been compared to Yazid, I mean, as like the ultimate sort of bad guy. Um, so that's probably why... They didn't take so well to, to that comparison. Um, but I think the green uprisings were also a slightly different context because the context of the uprisings were protesting the result of the Ahmadinejad election, right? And how important was Musavi, the other opposition candidate, in sort of fomenting protests and su supporting the protests back then? So he actually wasn't that important. So people, people, I often talk about the green movement when I talk about the protests today. And people don't understand why I do that, right? As a, as a historian of revolutionary movements, it's actually really important to we to be able to compare and contrast. The protest in 2009 started about the election results, and then it evolved to being an anti-state, anti-Islamic Republic movement. Like I said, they went from where's my vote to, you know, Khamenei's rule is null and void, and, and, you know, he should be overthrown. These were the slogans. The protest today started with the issue of the hijab and the death of one person, and it has evolved into something much bigger, has it not? And it evolved very quickly. So that's why it's important to kind of see the continuities. Musavi was a, Musavi, people see him as a leader. He wasn't. Uh, of course, he was a candidate. He was a reformist candidate. People, but people were, ended up really, what people ended up really doing was before the elections, they, there was calls for boycotts. And there was boycotts in 2005, which is why Ahmadinejad won resoundingly in 2005. There was a cause for boycotts again in 2009. And a lot of people didn't want to boycott for two reasons. One is because the idea is that voting in the Islamic Republic is a fool's errand because everything is kind of controlled. All the candidates are screened. And that's there's, there's a lot of truth to that for sure. But for people who lived under four years of Ahmadinejad's regime, they understood that there is a when you vote and you and you don't vote and you get stuck with a IRGC you know you know former commander who then appoints cabinet members all or majority of his cabinet appointees were from the IRGC who had no experience in government their IRGC commanders and led to the securitization of the country more than ever before. So when there was calls for boycotts in two thousand nine. People were like, they were not excited about boycotting. They didn't know what to do. They were kind of giving it a chance. And then they saw the television debates. So we've had we had presidential debates in the country before, but this is the first time they were one-on-one. -on -one. When they were one-on-one, -on -one, Musavi versus Ahmadinejad, even though there was four total candidates, the debates between Musavi and Ahmadinejad were really intense. They, Musavi was accusing Ahmadinejad of everything that a lot of Iranians have been saying amongst themselves, and now all of a sudden they're seeing it on national TV about the corruption, the securitization of the state. Musavi was like, when you go on, on TV and you talk about the Holocaust and stuff like that, you're embarrassing us, you're an embarrassment to us around the world, you've ruined the name of Iran across the globe. And people, what Musavi said resonated with people. And then what ended up happening was a lot of activists used his campaign to mobilize against the government. So you hear before the elections, before election day, you were already hearing slogans in Tehran saying, Mag bar Taliban, Chedar Kabul, Chedar Tehran. Right? Death to the Taliban, whether in Kabul or in Tehran, essentially equating 
clerical rule in Iran with one of its arch nemeses in, in, in the Taliban in Afghanistan. So you see that. And then when, when the election fraud happened, or, or Ahmadinejad supposed the election win, you start seeing a, a massive protest movement that really had nothing to do with Musavi. Musavi wasn't calling for it. Um, a lot of times when protests happened, he would jump on board with him after that. He did show up at one important protest, but it was, it was Monday, the Monday after. It was June 15th. He shows up amongst the crowds, but we, whether he showed up or not, it was going to happen. And then when the protest was driven down, driven underground after a week, it starts coming, it starts resurfacing on specific days of action where the government was relaxing repression to get its supporters to come out, like the anniversary of the seizure of the U.S. Embassy. On those days, the Iranian government wants people to come out, but come out to protest with the government, not against it, with the government against the United States. And on those days, when repression was relaxed, green movement protesters would reemerge and reignite the protest movement. That had nothing to do with Musavi and them. That, that strategy, that tactic took Musavi and them by surprise. They're doing stuff like that today. They're calling for these days of action. Uh, that's something that's kind of part of Iranian culture. Uh, they, like I said, the Ashura of 1978 was the day of political action. Um, the, when, when, when some, when protesters died in the Iranian revolution, the, their 40th day of mourning became not just a day where you go to the grave, but it became a day of protest. You saw that uh, when Masa Amini's 40th day came, people activated that cultural, that ritual for political reasons. That's something that is kind of embedded in Iranian culture. There's there's these Iranian and, and Islamic culture. There are these days, there's these cultural things that can or cannot be political. It depends on what you want to do with them. And so it's like, kind of like this cultural reservoir where politically you could activate them for political goals. That has nothing to do with Musavi or leadership or anything. That, that kind of is just part of Iranian history and culture. So I wanted to speak about um, the sort of structures, like the political structure of the Islamic Republic, because I think something that came out of the revolution was this sort of sprawling, interwoven, interlinked, massive government structure that relies, well, you have the Supreme Leader and then it, the functioning of, of um, you know, Khomeini and then followed by Khomeini was really dependent on the Revolutionary Guard, the IRGC, and then the paramilitary Basij. So I was wondering, do you think that you would need defections in all of these sort of institutions, all of these Iranian institutions? Or if you have more defections in one, would that sort of be enough to overthrow the regime from within? So these are again; these are hard things to predict, right? But but the Iranian government—I'll say this: the Iranian government, for all of its failings, um, has created a system that's almost coup-proof, right? It's it's coup-proof to a certain extent. Um, the, you know, the Guardian Council vets presidential and parliamentary candidates, um, and it abuses that power. But it also just means that. No U.S. back candidate or foreign back candidate could ever run for office, right? So it's just one of those things where, you know, as historians, when we look at the Shah's government, we we say that it's a one man show, a one bullet solution, right? Whereas this is a system. The Iranian government is is it has a very deep rooted system of governance and repression. Right, where whereas the Shah in nineteen seventy eight seventy nine had its secret police, its imperial guard to protect the royal family and the army, it didn't really have the means to put down demonstrators or demonstrations, and so it dispatched the army to do it, and that's when we see we saw mass defections, right? Because these were these were soldiers, conscripts, who were conscripted into the army and trained in conventional warfare to defend the territorial integrity of the country from foreign invasions, specifically Iraq. Iraq has been Iran before the revolution, before the war, before Saddam. Iraq was Iran's regional rival. Um, so it, because it, it wasn't prepared for the revolution, it used these soldiers to, to shoot demonstrators. And a lot of them were, didn't want to shoot not just their own countrymen and women, but also maybe friends and neighbors and family members, because they're conscripts. So that's why we saw so many defections. The Iranian government has learned this history. 
right? So it has created so many parallel security forces to prevent that. Uh, the most obvious one, as you mentioned, is the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC. The IRGC, this is also why organization is really important. The, the order to create the IRGC came about before the Shah's regime's final collapse. And they had a discussion. Khomeini and uh, Ayatollah Montazir and them, they had a conversation about what should we do next. And, and Montazir, I think Montazir and a couple others suggested to Khomeini that we can't trust the Iranian military because the Iranian military has been built by the Shah and the United States. It's loyal to the Shah. It has contacts with the United States, the same United States that overthrew Mossadegh through a faction of the military. We can't trust it. And so we need, a, we need to not only purge the military, which includes my grandfather, who was a two-star general who, was, who had to flee the country, but the idea was that we have to not only purge the military, but we have to create an entirely parallel military force that is the, the main purpose of it is to guard the revolution. That's why it's called the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps. And by that, it means protect the state and its leaders. The order Khomeini gave that order to create the IRGC when the Shah's military was in power. Before all that. This is why organization is so important. Right? And so... The state has been preparing for this, for all of its feelings. I remember, I remember, like I think weeks into COVID, the IRGC had this like really silly um, show in, in in the country somewhere in Iran, and it proclaimed that it has uh, found the vaccine to COVID way before there was a vaccine anywhere else, and that turned out to be BS. For all the feelings like that, it's 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 so prepared to put down demonstrators. And, and also fight wars abroad. That's, that's the one thing it has mastered. So historians, we, we call Iran a guerrilla state. And then, you know, the flip, the flip side to that is we, we call Israel a garrison state, right? These are two regional rivals now. Israel has walls everywhere, checkpoints everywhere, barbed wire everywhere. Uh, and then Iran has tunnels and uh, multiple layers of uh, security forces and military forces. It has allied armed groups that it created or co-founded across the region from uh, Hezbollah and Lebanon through the Hashdashabi forces in, um, in Iraq and elsewhere. So I, to, you know, to answer your question, is I, it's very hard for me to imagine a scenario. It's not impossible, but it's hard for me to imagine a scenario where um, there'll be a military coup or defections. I think civil wars is more likely in comparison to the, that scenario, but I still don't know if civil war is likely. Right. And you speak about um, the Islamic Republic as, you know, stylizing itself as being a resistant state, as helping resistance abroad. So in Palestine, for example. And what is the role of the IRGC in, in trying to enact that support for resistance, as well as the role of Basij. So I guess the Basij was probably formed in the Iran-Iraq war. Yes. Yeah, so I think the, 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 the most important case study for the IRGC as it relates to its military efforts vis-a-vis -vis Israel and the Palestinians is Hezbollah in Lebanon. So Hezbollah... People often call it a proxy of the Iranian government. I don't like to use that language because, you know, these there's, you know, just people have agency, right? So Hezbollah, will, its ultimate leader is Khamenei for certain, right? So if you look at this brochure or this pamphlet that came out in 1985, it's in Arabic, uh, when they proclaimed the existence of the organization in 1985. It was formed in 82, but they came out of the shadows in 85 with the publishing of this of this leaflet uh, and they, they have the picture of it Hezbollah martyrs and then on the back of it is a picture of Khomeini and they say in the leaflet that you know as Muslims you know what befalls the, what fate befalls Muslims in Afghanistan or the Philippines verily affects the body of the Islamic nation of which we are an integral part um, per the leadership of our um, guardian jurist Ayatollah Khomeini Right. So the, the interesting thing about Hezbollah's creation is that it had a lot of factors that kind of aggregated together to to spark its 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 creation. And it all happens in 82. Right. In 1982, uh, after two years of war with with Iraq, 
uh, Iran liberates Khoram Shah and um, basically is really emboldened. After two years of being on the defensive, it is now on the march. Right after Khoram Shah is liberated, uh, his, uh, Israel invades Lebanon. So Iran is feeling so emboldened that now it's also not only looking at Iraq and, and, and preparing a counter invasion of Iraq now for the first time, but it's looking beyond Iraq, beyond the border war and looking to, across the region. And when Israel invades Lebanon to fight the PLO, a lot of Lebanese Shiites get caught in the crossfire and, uh, ruptures exist within the existing Shiite uh, organizations, right? So, Amal at the time was an organization that predates the Iranian Revolution and predates the Islamic Republic. Um, because of some Shiites were uh, critical of the Palestinian armed presence in, in their areas, especially in South Lebanon, some Shiites welcomed the Israeli invasion. Uh, the fact that some Shiites welcomed the Israeli invasion angered those other Shiites. Those other Shiites met with Khomeini in 82. Uh, right when Khoram Shah was liberated and is, and then Israel invades Lebanon, Iran has this conference, uh, conference of the world's, uh, dispossessed, Mustazafin. And Khomeini meets in private with a delegation of radical Lebanese Shiite clergymen and basically says, go back and turn your, uh, your mosques into centers of jihad and we will be there with you every step of the way to help you, like, push back this invasion. Uh, and then Khomeini dispatches 1,500 guardsmen, IRGC guardsmen, to go through Syria into the Bekaa Valley and basically start training Hezbollah fighters. So you people often, you know, say that it's Iran's proxy, but you know they were the Iran was obviously huge in 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 the creation of Hezbollah, but there was also Lebanese clergymen who, because of the Israeli invasion, basically issued a call to arms. And many people signed up to fight the Israeli invaders. Um, and then another example is, is you know, when, when the uprising happens in Syria in 2011 and onwards, uh, Hezbollah got involved at that. And people say, oh, this, was, this is evidence of Hezbollah being Iran's proxy because Iran is so close to the Syrian government and didn't want to see the Syrian government fall. So it issued, it ordered Hezbollah to get involved and basically do Iran's bidding in Syria. And that's an oversimplification because the opposition to the Syrian government declared that as soon as they win the war and come to power, they're going to shut off Iranian support to Hezbollah. As soon as Hezbollah heard that, they're like, well, then we're going to make sure you don't come to power so that we keep the arms flowing to us. So they had their own incentive, especially since so much of the rebellion in Syria were, were fiercely anti-Shiite Takfiri groups. They didn't want a much bigger country like Syria that essentially envelops Lebanon to, um, to have Takfiri rebels in power. So, you know, Hezbollah helped turn the tide. Hezbollah, the Iranian government, the Russians helped turn the tide um, in, in favor of the Syrian government. Um, and that's really part of Iran's regional influence. It, its relationship with Hezbollah, um, uh, I would not call it a proxy, but Iran was very important to its founding and it is very important to Hezbollah's strength and sustainment, for sure. Right. Well, you've spoken about the regional ecosystem in the Middle East, and what about the sort of dual functionality of the Basij that came about out of the Iran-Iraq war? So, like, the Basij as being a paramilitary group which could crack down on peaceful protests within the country, but also present itself as being capable of fighting imperialism. Yeah, so... Um... You know, if we're going to talk about the Iran-Iraq War and the and the emergence of the Basij and then what they're doing now in terms of fighting imperialism, but then also cracking heads in the country, uh, we got to first mention the war. Um, I think it was this famous sociologist Charles Tilley that said, "War builds states," and the Iran-Iraq War built became the impetus to create the state and more importantly its narrative. Right. This is this is the era of the IRGC and the Basij, right? So for the the Basij was created as this as this you know fierce Shiite force that was fighting the Yazid of the time, which is Saddam Hussein and its backers, the Soviet Union, West Germans, the French, the British, uh, the Americans, and a lot of Arab heads of state. And um, when you go to Iran today, you see all these murals dedicated to the martyrs of the war. Uh, 
Um, you know, so that memory and is part of the aesthetic landscape of the country. Uh, a lot of Basij fighters, a lot of Basij paramilitary force members today, they see themselves as carrying on that legacy. Now, the interesting thing is, is that there is a big difference between the younger Basij people, Basij members, and then the older ones. The older ones who were fought, fought in that war and were very zealous in that war. Um, a lot of them are like fathers now and they have daughters and may not be excited about some of these uh, anti-women ordinances from the state that they helped protect and help establish and defend in, in the 80s. Uh, the younger Basij forces, and I mean, I'm generalizing, not all the younger Basij forces are like this, but a lot of the younger Basij forces look to the older ones, both with respect and admiration for having fought in the Iran-Iraq war, but also some of them say that generation has gotten soft. They got old. So there's this like new generation of young zealots and uh, they see themselves as, as carrying forth the banner of that resistance to the Iraqi invaders now resisting to the United States. And then they see, many of them see that going up against these protesters is part of the anti-imperialist struggle because they have bought into the government narrative that the protesters are part of that Western conspiracy. There's a really good book on um, part of what we're talking about right now about the differences in the older and younger passage uh, generations. And it's a book by uh, Nagesa Bajogli. It's called Iran Reframed. I couldn't put it down. I read it in one day. It's short, but it's a great book. I loved it. Uh, it's very illuminating for certain. We tend to look at these things as monoliths and um, this narrative or her book kind of complicates that narrative um, and shows you that there's a generational divide uh, uh, within not just the state, but its, its security forces. Well, the Iran-Iraq war clearly played a really important role in post-revolutionary Iranian identity. But what about, now that we're talking about history, what about um, before the revolution? So under the Shah, because um, Iran was basically a one-man monarchy, uh, what were the social structures and like the, the class formation and different political structures which enabled the revolution? Um, in particular, how the Shah emboldened the, the clerical or the clerics rather to sort of maybe tame down or, or dampen down the threat of communists in the country and, and in doing so actually brought about the revolution. So I'm smiling because I love the question, right? This is essentially what what were the causes of the Iranian revolution? That's essentially what you're asking. Um, there are, there's an entire literature on this. And I can't give you an example. I can only try to give you the contours of the debate and probably what I think as well. But the Shah, for certain, uh, was part of the American camp in the Cold War. He was fiercely anti-communist, was dispatching Iranian soldiers to places like Oman to help put down Marxist rebellions in places like Dofar, Oman. Um, He was the guardian of the Persian Gulf, the guardian of Western interests in the Persian Gulf. Um, And dispatched this guy named Imam Musa Sadr to, to Lebanon because Shiites typically, when they're minorities, um, they're usually the most, before the Iranian revolution, they're typically the most poor and the most marginalized. So for that reason, in the Cold War, Marxism appealed to them probably the most because it spoke to their economic plight. The Shah sees a lot of Marx, a lot of the Shiites in places like Najaf and Karbala in Iraq, the shrine cities, the Shiite shrine cities of Najaf and Kabbalah, he sees Shiites in places like Lebanon uh, gravitating towards Marxism, and he sees th- that as a domino effect in, in the largest Shiite majority country in the world, being Iran. He was worried that might impact Iran. So he sends someone like Imam Musa Sadr to preach religion and to basically guide his pe- guide, guide Lebanese Shiites away from Marxism and towards religion. Domestically, the Shah was... Um, cultivating Shiism, but not the way you think. Like the idea, people mostly mostly blame the Shah for the revolution in the sense that he cultivated the clergy and then they rose up against him. That's not the entire picture. And, and by that, I mean, most of the clergy that came to power or many of the clergy that came to power after the revolution were, were either at one point imprisoned, tortured, or exiled. So the clergy were not given a total free hand 
to preach religion, and then and then they mobilized against the state. Khomeini was arrested and he was exiled 14 years. Khomeini's one-time successor, Ayatollah uh, Hossein Ali Montazeri, was prisoned for many years and he was made he was tortured and then he was made to listen to the torture of his son, Muhammad Montazeri. Ayatollah Talagani, the first Friday prayer leader after the revolution, was tortured extensively in the 70s to the point that when he died soon after the revolution, some believed he died because the, the more militant clergy that wanted an Islamic Republic poisoned him. That's one of the conspiracy theories because Talagani was a clergyman, but he was not down with the clerical-led government, was not supportive of it whatsoever. So some believe he was poisoned by those who wanted to create a clerical-led government. Some people argue that the torture he sustained took a toll on him and essentially, you know, took his life when he got when he got a little bit older. Um, and then and then there's Ayatollah Qafari, who was a was a clergyman who died in prison through torture. So it's not one of those things where he cultivated Islam. In it. It's not the whole story, right? It's part of the story that the Shah built built mosques to get people to be more religious, not because he wanted religion. I mean, he was personally pretty. He had he had moments of piety. Like he survived an assassination attempt when he was young, and he thought God intervened to save his life. He had that kind of um, kind of worldview. But he had a secular polity, right? His politics were secular. And um, when you talk about the social forces, it was a militant faction of the clergy that be, essentially forced the entire nationwide mosque network to go into to to format revolution it was partially them and then an alliance with the with the uh, bazaar class the merchant class because iran in the mid-70s undergoes severe recession and then the state blamed when inflation occurs the state blamed the merchant class and began to um, find them when they protested those fine they were they were arrested and Sorry, so they question when you, when you're talking about inflation are you talking about inflation following the 1973 no. Oh. no, no, no. Well, yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I thought you were going to say following the, the revolution. No, so, following the oil it, crisis when, when the Shah basically increased uh, the price of oil by 14%. Yeah, so what, what ends up happening is the Shah goes on a spending spree. right? He's, he, he's, his, his regime was awash with billions in oil wealth because of the Arab oil embargo uh, following the uh, Yom Kippur War of 1973. Um then he goes on this spending spree, but the country's infrastructure was not ready, right? So you can't import all these things when your ports are not built, when you don't have the roads and the, and the transportation systems to bring in all those. So, so there was a bottleneck in Iran's ports. That causes recession and inflation. The merchant class was blamed for it when the, when the prices skyrocketed. Uh, they were fined. When they protested those fines, they were arrested. So the merchant class became incentivized to side with the enemies of the regime. And, and, and that's essentially the militant fashion of the clergy. The merchant class also is, has been historically close with the clergy. A lot of intermarrying, uh, the tobacco revolt, the constitutional revolution, a lot of it has to do with them joining forces against the monarchies, against the monarchs. Um, the student class was very supportive of the Iranian revolution. A lot of them were Marxists uh, or leftists. And so they, they saw the Shah as... as the imperialist outposts in the country, the and they saw Iran as being part of the capitalist West, uh, but in a in a way that was benefiting the metropoles of the colonial powers. So they they had an incentive to help bring him down. Um, there was one other thing I wanted to say. Uh, oh, and we're talking about the political situation. So the, the shop was growing. Because of the oil wealth, he thought, and this is kind of the, what we call in academia the oil curse, right? He felt that because he wasn't taxing the population, he didn't have to give them representation. So in 1975, I believe, he scrapped the two-party system in favor of the one-party system, right? So it was, you know, in a, in a way, it was kind of like a fascist system. And the two-party system itself was... We call in history the yes and the yes sir parties. They were like rubber stamps of the Shah, anyways. And even that rubber stamp was consolidated into a one party system. So you had Iranians going to universities, the universities, a lot of them that the Pahlavi dynasty had established. So they're learning these new ideas 
about democratic government, anti-imperialism, nationalism, independence, all these things that they've been learning about for a hundred years, but now that now the masses are learning it in education systems in the country. And then um, and then they see that the, the market's also the economy is modernizing. So you see the emergence of a modern middle class. And the, typically the modern middle class are the ones that are the ones that can be activists because typically if you're super poor people think revolutions happen by by the by the lower class uh in 1978-79 that was not the case um the the poor are too busy typically struggling to survive for their daily bread they don't have refrigerators uh let alone food in the refrigerators they don't have any of that so if they go on strike or if they're protesting that means they're not getting their wage for that day to be able to put food on the sofre or on if you want to call it a table sure right uh, and then the, the rich typically don't want to see changes because the status quo benefits them. So really the emergence of a modern middle class in the country and modern ideas, you see them wanting to agitate for political openness and participation and inclusion. And then the state was going in the opposite direction by narrowing the um, avenues for political participation by scrapping the two-party system. So you see the whole generation saying, if we can't participate, within the system, then this, the entire system has to go. We'll participate by casting our, our referendum against the state by voting with our feet in mass protests, which is essentially what happened. And at that point, it was quite apparent that the monarchy was extremely repressive. I mean, Savak, the secret services, was torturing political prisoners. I think something like a thousand political prisoners were killed towards the end of the 70s before the start of the revolution, which is maybe something a lot of Iranians in the diaspora don't always want to recognize when they when they speak about the Shah and, and when they still continue to support their nostalgic idea of what the monarchy was. Yeah, so the, 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 and I grew up in the diaspora, so I, I'm very well attuned to these arguments that I hear from, I've been hearing it all my life, that when you talk about the abuses of the Shah, there's two typical responses. One they say is that the Shah didn't know about it. His secret police were doing it and they kept it from him, which is complete BS. Another one is that, okay, fine, he was repressive, but he's nothing compared to today's government. And that's actually true, but that is not an excuse. That does not justify anything. The, the Iranian government today is far more repressive than the Shah ever was. But that does not give the Shah a get-out-of-jail-free card. Like, there's a reason why the revolution happened. Right. There's structural, ideological, repressive reasons for why it happened. And again, it's because people want to participate in the political system. The repression and the consolidation of the two party system into one made people realize that they can't participate. The only real way to participate is by their feet and overthrowing the entire system. Iranians are reaching that point today, too, by the way. And well, speaking about today, let's bring this full circle. What do you think, I mean, this is a really difficult question to answer, but what should countries be doing and not be doing to support the protesters? So these are, these are all sensitive uh, questions, right? Um, so I'll tell you what people are saying and I'll tell you what I think. So people are saying that this is the moment, the time has come, um, everyone should be doing everything it can to isolate the Iranian government and help it help it's helped facilitate its demise at the hands of the, of, of the people and, and those demonstrating. So I, I understand that point. My, my, my issue then is, as a historian of the whole region and, and U.S. foreign policy as well, is I, I live in the United States. So what we're really talking about, for me at least, is what should the U.S. government do? And, and when I know the history of the United States involvement in the Middle East, when I know the history of the United States involvement in Iran and subverting democratic movements around the world, and democratic governments. Um, I think that the, it's a matter of legitimacy. And the United States does not have the legitimacy. Even though it's set, it sees itself as this oldest and greatest democracy on the world, I understand, I, I understand how Americans like to see themselves. It does not correspond with the reality of U.S. foreign policy everywhere else outside of Eastern Europe post-Cold War. So I think if the U.S. government wants to preach and pontificate, I, I would hope that it would do so consistently because that's when U.S. rhetoric about freedom carries weight is when it's doing it consistently. You can't, it's difficult to support the freedom of Iranian protesters while you're enabling 
the occupation of the Palestinians, or when you are sustaining the one of the most retrograde governments in the world, and the Saudi government. Like Trump himself said it, the moment we withdraw our security guarantee from these countries in the Persian Gulf region, they'll fall within a week. And there's a bit of truth to that, right? So we essentially Trump Trump admitted that the U.S. arms and sustains dictatorships in the Persian Gulf region. So I think that if the United States wants to do something in support of the Iranian government, it would it needs to be consistent about advocating for freedom and, and living up to its own ideals so that when it does say something, it doesn't end up being to the detriment of the movement where the Iranian government says, look, the United States is saying this, it must be behind the protest movement, right? That's the historian's answer or a historian's answer. And then according to that, they should also roll back certain sanctions, which continue to immiserate the population. I mean, you've, you've already said that the protests are not a result of the sanctions. I mean, the, you know, Masamini was not killed because of the sanctions, but yeah. they still played a role in creating these very specific socio socioeconomic conditions and basically fleecing the Iranian. Yeah, it's crazy because the, the this the discourse is narrowed. It's very difficult to talk about the sanctions. The the sanctions before this uprising and to this day don't have credibility, right? The, the sanctions were about the nuclear program. Iran more or less surrendered its nuclear program. It had been abiding by the JCPOA. The US arbitrarily subverted the JCPOA, sanctioned the country. For a full year, Iran continued to abide by the JCPOA until it basically stopped. Um, and to this day, it's clamoring to return to the JCPOA. Um, but, the, but, but the strategy really is this, and, and they'll tell it to you themselves. The, the, the very hawkish Iranians in the diaspora um, will tell you this themselves. They're like, we don't want... The, first of all, they'll tell you two things, that the sanctions target the government only. And that is just not true. The, 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 the sanctions are on the financial sector. That financial sector is, is for the whole country. So there's charts. You can look at the charts. The moment the sanctions were snapped back by the Trump administration, inflation that was up here spiraled out of control, right? That inflation affects the whole country. So if you're 65 years old or 60 years old, you're preparing to retire, and now your savings is not worth the paper it's on, that has to do with the sanctions. Right, so let's, we, people don't want to talk about it. Let's be honest about it. The sanctions now. Why are the sanctions happening? Because they'll tell it to you themselves. The the Iranians in the diaspora, the Saudi government, the Emirati government, the Israeli government, they don't want a economic solution to Iranian suffering. They want a political solution. Right. The Iranian government does not want a political solution. It wants an economic solution. It wants to be able to invest and trade and then improve the standards of living for the population in hopes that they'll just acquiesce to the status quo, essentially like the Saudis and the Chinese citizens. Um, the, all these people that are against sanctions, they don't, they want to keep the Iranians at a certain below sustenance level so they could be even more angry about the politics of the day so they could seek a political solution. And the, the interesting thing is the Israelis that want a political solution for Iran and an and not an economic solution. When it comes to Palestinians, they want an economic solution and not a political one. So they don't want a two-state negotiated settlement with the Palestinians or any kind of settlement with the Palestinians. They're just like, look, we want to continue the occupation. We want to continue building on Palestinian lands, but let's bring in some investment. Let's improve their lot. So they just shut up because maybe they're just... Maybe the, the quality of life will be better, and then they don't want to jeopardize that. So it's a little bit dishonest to, to talk about Iranian suffering and not talk about sanctions. Sanctions are a big part of the story. But again, you know, just like you said, the sanctions don't explain the fact that we have a supreme leader for life in the country. It doesn't explain the fact that we have a morality police. It doesn't explain the fact that we have torture and rape in prisons of both men and women. It doesn't explain the fact that somebody was ruled for a dumb law like the, the hijab law and then she died under custody. The sanctions don't excuse any of that. But we gotta, we have to understand the sanctions are part of the story. Definitely. Well, Puya, thank you so much for that historical deep dive and for your analysis on the current protests. And it would be great to have you on another time. It was my pleasure. Thank you for the wonderful questions.
Thanks for joining me, Fuya. Take care.